And good morning. That was not rhetorical, so good job there. Great to be with you, and um, man, I every week feel like I'm saying, this is such an awesome psalm, this is going to be wonderful, and this psalm, every psalm is so awesome, but you know, Psalm 27, like some of the other ones that we have studied, is, is truly a beloved psalm by many Christians, and I think that Psalm 27 verse 4 really is sort of the crown jewel of this psalm. Maybe some of you have that verse memorized, uh, certainly for a lot of us, hearing it or rereading it is familiar, I'll, I'll read it again for us. David here writes, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What a beautiful, beautiful verse. What a beautiful prayer for David to be praying. And that little expression there, this expression, one thing, it really does speak to a singular focus. It speaks to a ultimate purpose that David has, this desire to be in God's presence. This verse, verse 4, sort of functions like a mission statement for David, the author of this psalm. Obviously, many companies and organizations have a mission statement, and mission statements can be helpful because they provide some clarity behind the who and the what and, and most importantly, the why of a company or an organization. So it's a succinct statement of purpose or mission for that organization. Tesla has this mission statement, to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. That's it. That's what they want to do. They want to accelerate that transition. TED, the company behind TED Talks, really has a simple mission statement. It is spread ideas. That's the point. We're going to give free information and spread ideas around the web. PayPal's mission statement is to build the web's most convenient, secure, cost-effective payment solution. Even as a church, we have a mission statement. Loving God, loving people, and leading others to do the same. And again, mission statements are helpful because they, they really allow us to focus in on what it is that matters most, what it is that we're all about and from verse 4, you could say, in a sense, that we are learning what David, this man after God's own heart, is all about. This is the one thing he says, that he's desiring this one thing that he's seeking after. Now, of course, it's not the only thing David seeks after. And in fact, even if you go through the Psalter, he talks about seeking other things. For example, he talks about seeking peace in Psalm 34, 14. David there writes, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So there's a call there to be a person who's seeking peace. Over in Psalm 122, verse 9, David there talks about seeking the good of his fellow Hebrews. He writes there, For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So David not, is not saying in Psalm 27, 4, this is the only thing I seek. He's using that language, though, to communicate that this is the priority of all the things that David seeks. In fact, as you look at that word seek throughout the Psalter, you will find that most often David is talking about seeking the Lord, seeking the presence of God. This is his highest and his most noble desire as a man of God. It's his ultimate pursuit. Here's how he puts it in Psalm 63 verse 1 famously, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, 
My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So this is where David's at. This is his heart. If he could distill his life's purpose down into a tweet, maybe it would be Psalm 27.4. Just this one thing, Lord. This is what I ask for. This is what I desire. This is what I'm seeking. This is what I'm pursuing. Now, of course, verse 4 is situated in a larger uh, body of thought, a larger context. Taken as a whole, it seems like fear is the overarching issue in Psalm 27. If you look at verse 1, again, you see it there. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He goes on to say, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So fear is kind of lurking in the background of Psalm 27. Look at verse 3 as well. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. And then even at the end of the psalm, down in verse 14, he says, wait for the Lord, and then he talks about the opposite of fear. He says, be strong and let your heart take courage. That's what it looks like to not live in fear. You're taking heart and you're being courageous in faith. And so this psalm really, again, is a psalm that deals with fear and how David processes the subject of fear. The psalm is divided into two general parts. So if you're a note taker type, you can kind of break this in half here. Uh, verses 1 through 6, in that portion of the psalm, we see confident trust. David in these six verses is just declaring his trust in the Lord in the midst of his adversaries, in the midst of fear. The second half of the psalm, verses 7 through 14, shifts gears and now we see an earnest petition. David is earnestly coming before the Lord, asking for a series of things. In fact, uh, the two halves of this psalm are, are so different in one sense that a lot of commentators actually think that maybe originally this was two different prayers that were merged together later. I don't find that convincing. Uh, their argument, though, is basically he goes from this place of like confident trust to then this place of desperate petition. How could these be the same thing? But isn't that sometimes where our prayer flows from? Of course, sometimes our prayer does flow out of anxiety and insecurity, and that leads us to prayer. But oftentimes, especially the more mature you are in your faith, you pray out of confident trust. You're, you're not wondering who to look to. You're not freaking out when the world is going crazy. You are confident in the Lord, but you still come and you pray, and you ask God for the things that you need, and it seems that that's what David's doing in Psalm 27. So let's take this, these two halves and break them apart here. So confident trust, like I said, is verses 1 through 6. In the first three verses, as he introduces this psalm, as he gets into prayer, we see confidence instead of fear. Confidence instead of fear. Notice in verse 2, he describes evildoers, adversaries, and foes that he's facing. He even uses language that describes a pack of animals who would like to eat up my flesh. So there's this hungry pack of animals that are surrounding him and they just want to devour him. They want to destroy him. In verse 3, he describes an army that is encamped against him and a war that is facing him. 
So I say all that to say this, that what David is facing in Psalm 27 are real threats. This is not imaginary. This is not just a man who's letting his mind wander about a bunch of hypotheticals. This is real threats, and these could therefore be fear-inducing, right? When we're faced with a real threat, maybe your company is threatening to lay you off. Maybe the doctor has told you about a diagnosis. There's something real in your life. When we're facing that, that can produce fear in us, and oftentimes it does. But that's not what happens with David in Psalm 27. This doesn't produce fear. Psalm 27, in Psalm 27, David is not dominated by fear. He's controlled by the Lord and he's trusting in God. It's amazing. He says that the Lord is his light and his salvation in verse 1. In other words, God is the one who guides him in the darkness. God is the one who delivers him and rescues him from every trial in his life. He also says that the Lord is the stronghold of my life. In other words, God is his refuge or his defense, his castle that he can take refuge in. So mighty is this defense that when David's enemies assault him, in verse 2 he says, it is they who stumble and it is they who fall. So you almost picture these enemies trying to take a castle and yet the castle's defenses are totally impregnable. And so even though they try to assault David and take him, they are the ones who retreat because the defense is too strong. Well, because David is the Lord's and the Lord is David's, he is confident instead of afraid. David has courage under fire. And it's not just that David has the Lord in some vague or some theoretical sense. David's focus is on the Lord. God is present in his mind and in his heart. We saw that in verse 4. David's sole focus is the Lord. He wants to dwell in the temple. He wants to be where the Lord is. This is what he makes his life's aim. It's to keep the Lord at the center of his life. We'll read it one more time. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Starting in verse 4 and continuing in verse 5, we find now that David has confidence from God's presence. This is the source of his confidence, the source of his courage. It's not that he's a capable military leader, although he is. It's not that he's a mighty warrior, although he is. David's confidence is ultimately rooted in the fact that he is with God and God is with him. This is a recurring theme throughout the Psalter. Over and over again, when we're faced with the temptation to give in to fear, the antidote to that is God's presence. That God is with us and he will see us through. David wants to live in God's house. He says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He wants to dwell in God's house. And we've talked about that idea in the Psalter before. David is not saying that he wants to Airbnb the temple. Right? What happens when you Airbnb? The owner of the home is gone. They vacate. You rent their property because it's a great house and you hang out there. That's not what David wants to do. He's not saying, oh, I want to dwell in God's house because the temple's so cool. No, no, he wants to dwell in God's house because that's where God dwells. 
This is language that depicts a heart that wants to be where the presence of God is. He wants to be with the Lord. This becomes even more clear when we look at the two reasons that David gives for wanting to dwell in God's house. Here's the two reasons in verse 4. Number one, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And number two, to inquire in his temple. Derek Kidner, the Old Testament scholar, says this, to behold and to inquire speaks of a preoccupation with God's person and his will. He wants to gaze, he wants to behold the Lord. He wants to see God, be present with God, and inquire. He wants to know God's will. How should I live? Where should I go? What's my next move, Lord? And as I mentioned a moment ago, this really is the antidote to fear and anxiety. Remember back in Psalm 23, the famous shepherd psalm, verse 4, David could write, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So David was not afraid, even though he was entering in into the darkness of the shadow of the valley of death. He says, I'm not afraid there because God is with me. Over in Philippians in the New Testament, in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul could write, starting in verse 6, to not be anxious about anything. Okay, we don't have to be anxious, we don't have to be afraid, fearful, worried about anything. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, he, brothers, he writes, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So don't worry about anything. Go to God in prayer and meditate. Put before your mind the things that are true and beautiful and just and lovely. And church, is there anything more true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, or worthy of praise than God himself? Of course not. So as we put him before our minds constantly, anxiety, fear, worry are being uprooted in our hearts. Now notice the expression that he uses there, that he wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I, I wrote down gaze, not glance, right? There's a difference there. When you, when you glance at something, that's just seeing it and then moving your eyes somewhere else, but to gaze on something, right? That communicates sustained focus. I'm locking in on this thing. I'm looking at this thing. I'm focused on it. And in order to combat fear and anxiety, it requires an intentional focus, a continual setting of the mind and the heart on the Lord and his promises. Isaiah 26.3 puts it this way, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is what? Stayed on you. Whose mind is stayed on you. This is sustained focus. It's putting the Lord before your mind, before your heart, continually. Because you're going to be preoccupied with something. And it can be all of the fear-inducing circumstances in your life, or it can be the presence and the promises of God. 
but you're going to have your mind stayed on something. And God says, listen, you want peace in your life? You want confidence and courage in your life and not fear? Put your mind on me, my person, my promises. Gaze is important for another reason, too. Gaze is what you do when you see something beautiful. Right? If you see something beautiful, a sunrise or a sunset, you don't just glance at that. It captivates you. You you pause and you stop and you look at it. Or if you look at a natural wonder, right? Nobody drives all the way to the Grand Canyon and gets there and jumps out of the car and says, all right, kids, come here, let's look. Cool, check that off our list, get back in the car and move on. You get there and you look at it and then you just keep looking. And you start saying things like, whoa, look, this is beautiful. This is incredible. How could this be here? Oh, my God. Because it's so beautiful. Or when you look at that attractive guy or that beautiful girl, you don't just, oh. When you're married, maybe you do that. But when you're single, you know, oh. If they're really, 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 really beautiful, you look and then you're captivated. You're gazing. And you have to actually kind of like stop yourself from doing that because they're going to think you're weird. Right, but, but if something's beautiful, it captivates you. It locks your gaze in. And David here says that he wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David finds God beautiful. And this is the language of love. This is the language of somebody who has been completely overwhelmed by God's beauty and his majesty. So this is the language of love. And we constantly need to remind ourselves that Christianity is not merely about obedience or duty or fear or getting out of hell. Christianity is about love. God's love for us and our love for him. So Christianity is about relationship. And God, the most beautiful, amazing, loving being in all of existence, is offering us his love. And so when we see God for who he is, it does something to us. It captivates our hearts. It draws us in. And it causes us to be people who gaze upon his beauty. So David's highest aim here is to dwell in the presence of the Lord where he can delight in God's beauty and determine God's will. And this, being in God's presence, is the only way to dispel all of our fears and all of our anxiety. Verse 5 builds on this. He says in verse 5, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. In verse 5, David just uses three different ways to express that it is God who will protect him. First, he says, God will hide me in his shelter. So, if you've ever lived in the Midwest, where tornadoes are a thing, you have storm cellars, also called storm shelters. And if a tornado's coming, you run and you go inside the shelter. It's where you can go to be protected. And David says, hey, God will hide me. He'll bring me into his shelter. He's going to protect me. Then he says, secondly, God will conceal me under the cover of his tent. Now we might say, well, a tent, that's not like all that safe, right? And you could like take a knife out and poke a hole in a tent. Well, that's true. But David here, first of all, when he talks about tent, he's, he's talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about the place where God dwells. 
First God dwelt in a tent called a tabernacle, and then David's son Solomon built a temple. So he's talking about God's presence, but, but even if we think about a tent, yeah, sure, a tent is weak in comparison to a building like this, but it's an awesome and a secure feeling to be in a tent if that's all you got. If the other option is being exposed out in the middle of nothing, and back in David's time, most people would wander and travel many nights in the desert, out in the wilderness, and they would just lay down, maybe have a little fire, and there were predators all around them. And if you were under a little bit of a tent, that feels really, really nice, really, really secure. There's a TV show, Alone. I've talked about it before, and I think I inspired multiple people in this church to watch Alone in one sermon. So maybe I'll get more Alone. Season 8 is out now for purchase on Amazon Prime. Hashtag ad. No, I'm not being paid for that. But in alone, these people get dropped off by themselves with like 10 survival items in a remote location, and they have to just survive as long as they can. And it's amazing how the first three things they're trying to do is get fire, get food and water, and get shelter built. And their, their beginning shelters are sometimes nothing more than just a tarp. They string over a tree branch or something, but they feel so excited when they just get that done because it keeps them from the elements a little bit, and it can keep them, if they get a backing to it, protected from some of the animals that are out there in the wilderness. And they're thrilled to have just a simple tent. David says that the Lord conceals him under the cover of his tent. Finally, he says that God lifts him high upon a rock. Simple picture of being elevated to a secure place. His enemies, if they're down below him, are going to be a lot easier to control and to handle. This awareness of David's safety and God's presence leads him to be confident of the outcome in verse 6. So we see confidence for the future there. He's confident that he is going to triumph, that his head will be lifted high above his enemies. So he's going to be the one that's honored as they're diminished because of what God's going to do. And so because of this, David knows that he will live to worship again. Notice the future tense in verse 6. He says, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So he's confident. He knows how this is going to turn out for him. God is not going to let him perish. And for all of us who are in Christ by faith, no matter what we face in life, we should be able to come back to this sort of a confident assurance that ultimately God will deliver us. God is going to take care of us. It might not be in the ways that we want in the here and now, but ultimately God will take care of his people. So in these first six verses, what we find is that David is declaring his confident trust in the Lord. He's not going to be ruled by fear. He's confident in the Lord. And he also plays his hand on what his deepest and holiest desire is. I just want to be in God's presence. I want to be able to delight in his person. And I want to know his will. In the second half of the psalm, David puts all of that into action. Remember back in verse 4 again, he has two desires there. He wants to gaze upon the beauty, so it's about the person of God. And he wants to inquire in the temple. He wants to know the will of God. That's exactly what he's going to ask for in the petition side of this prayer. It's not enough to say, I want to be with God. We have to pursue him. 
Otherwise, if we don't, it reveals that we didn't actually want to be with him all that bad. I love that David said back in verse 4, not just that he asked of the Lord that he, he would have God's presence, but that he would seek after it. This was the thing that was driving him. And so in verses 7 through 12, we see earnest petition. And again, it's toward that end. He is seeking after the Lord. He begins in verse 7 just by simply asking that God would hear him. But as he does, he's falling once again, as he constantly does in the Psalter. He's falling on God's grace as the reason why God should hear him. He doesn't think that God owes him anything. So he asks God to listen to him and to be gracious to him. But now notice that God, or David actively pursues God's person and God's will, starting with God's person in verses 8 through 10. Here's his prayer. He says, You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. David here is saying, Lord, I know that you invite people to seek you. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to seek you. My heart says, seek you. I'm going to pursue you. Again, this is what he talked about back in verse 4, and now he's doing it. Lord, I'm seeking you in prayer. I'm coming to you. My heart is actively seeking you. And church, God invites us, even as he invited David, to seek him and to find him. In Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, we read, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, there are plenty of people who think that God is hard to find. There are plenty of people who say, you know, I, I tried. I wanted to know God. I, I sought God, but God was nowhere to be found. He didn't show up for me. But how earnestly have they really sought the Lord? And how sincerely have they actually sought him? Most people want a relationship with God on their own terms. They want to establish the terms of the agreement. I want a God who is like, and then they just fill in all of their own desires. I want a God who does, and then they fill in all of their wish list. And when you come to God with your own demands on him, guess what? You'll end up empty-handed. When you come to God with humility and openness and sincerity and say, I want God for who he is. I want God as he actually is, and I'm open to whatever that means about God. And whatever that means for me. You'll come up receiving. Notice the key words in that Isaiah passage. Maybe you guys can put it back on the screen for us for a moment. Again, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Okay, cool. All I got to do is throw a prayer up to heaven. No, no, no. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Do you see the instruction there? What is he saying? He's telling us how we find God. It's through changing our behavior, forsake his way. We have to turn away from a lifestyle of disobedience and rebellion against God. But it's not just changing our behavior. That's not deep enough. That's just moral reform. Anybody can do that. 
we also have to change our beliefs. He says, let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. We have to be get willing to give up our ways of thinking, our conceptions of who God is, our own moral compass. We have to be willing to surrender all of that to the truth of who God is and what God tells us in his words. So it's a changing of our behavior. It's also a changing of our beliefs. And finally, and most significantly of all, it is a robust trust in the Lord. He says, let him return to the Lord. So this is not just about moral reform. It's not even just about right thinking. Underneath all of that is relationship that is founded on a robust, concrete trust in the Lord to say, I believe in you. I surrender to you. You get to be the Lord of my life and I'll follow you whatever that means and wherever that takes me. And I don't care who you are. I don't care where you live on planet earth today. I don't care how young you are, how old you are. I don't care what your religious background or irreligious background is. If you come to God like that, saying, God, I am here to change everything that you ask me to change. I'm here to receive you for who you are. You're not going to come up empty-handed. You seek him while he may be found, and you come to him in this way, and guess what? He says that the Lord will have compassion on him. And he will abundantly pardon that person. And so maybe there are some here this morning who this has been the whole hang-up in your religious life. Is that you have not come to God on his terms. You've never opened yourself up to who he actually is. Oh, that God would just give you the grace today. To have that level of humility and that level of surrender, it'll change everything for you. You will find him today, and you'll be found by him today, and it will change everything from this day forward. Notice in verse 9 that for David, the great catastrophe would be if God hid his face from him. If God, in his anger, turned David away and cast him off. In biblical language, this is the ultimate curse. This is the worst case scenario, is the idea that God would actually turn his face away from you. That's why David is saying, your face is the thing that I seek. We get a sense of this back in Numbers chapter 6. There's a famous three verses there, Numbers 6, 24 through 26. And there what we find is what's called the Aaronic blessing. This is the blessing that the priests in Israel, who are the sons of Aaron... The, the blessing that they were supposed to pronounce over the people on God's behalf. So we're hearing God's heart here. And they're supposed to say this to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. Well, that sounds good. I want God to bless me and keep me. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The vision in the Hebrew mind was... That if, if God's face is toward me, I'm in the place of blessing. I have his smile. I have his love. I have his affection. I have his heart. And conversely, if God turns his face away from me, turns his back on me, I'm utterly forsaken. I'm hopeless. I'm lost forever. And so David here cries out, 
First it's, Lord, I'm seeking your face, but he can't barely get those words out of his mouth without also saying, and please, please, please don't ever turn your face away from me. Sometimes we think of God as this needy, completely accepting, uncritical, softy, who's just begging anyone and everyone, just come to me and we'll sort it all out, just do it your way, whatever you want, and and I need you, I need you, I need you. David didn't think like that. He was not that naive. He was not that presumptuous. David knew that God had turned people away in his holy anger. In fact, David's predecessor, King Saul, was completely rejected by God because Saul wanted a relationship with God on his own terms. God had told him how to obey him, how to honor him, how to worship him, and Saul didn't obey. So David knows that this is a real possibility. People will be rejected by God on the final day. People don't want to hear that, but that's the truth. If we don't come to God on his terms, we will be rejected. And so David is praying this way. Again, the person who thinks that God owes them something is going to be disappointed. But the person who demands nothing of God and falls entirely on his grace is going to receive. They're the ones who are going to come up full. Now this is not a lack of confidence from David here. It's just a lack of presumption. David is still very confident that the Lord loves him. He's confident that the Lord will secure him and be with him. It's almost as if he's praying, Lord, I believe that you'll be with me, but I know you don't owe that to me, so please be merciful and dwell with me and let me dwell with you. It's a great way to pray. Verse 10, of course, reminds us, though, that he is confident. Verse 10 is a verse that many people love in Psalm chapter 27. He says there, For my father and my, and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. How many people throughout the history of the church have taken great comfort in Psalm 2710? It's one thing to be forsaken by your foes, but it's another thing to be forsaken by your family. But David could come in this level of confidence and say, Lord, regardless of what other people do to me, even those people who are supposed to love me unconditionally and protect me and be there for me, even if all of them turn away from me, you won't. Even if my father and mother kicked me out of their house, you'll still take me in. Your door is always open. You think of the story of the prodigal son. The dad didn't kick the son out. The son initiated that. Hey, dad, I'm tired of waiting for you to die so I can get my portion of the inheritance. Give me mine now. Now, a lot of us dads, would take our son to the woodshed if they talked to us like that. The father acquiesces. He says, okay, that's fine. He gives him the money. He's grieved over it. He gives him the money. It's an embarrassment in the community because he had to sell off property to pay out his son right there. And his son goes off and squanders it. But guess what? His son came home and the dad did not say, no, you went too far. You broke my trust. You broke my love. The father runs to the son. The father embraces the son. And the father restores the son back to the place that he had before. It's amazing. <clears throat> God is called a father to the fatherless. So that no matter what other people have done to us, God will take you in. In verses 11 and 12, 
we see the shift now. So he was pursuing God's presence, but now he's pursuing God's will. Look at verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Now, David in the Psalter always understands being in God's will as being on a level ground. If I'm in God's will, if I'm being guided by God's word, it is, is as if I'm standing on a stable, secure footing. Nothing will rock me. Nothing will shake me. I will be secure. This core conviction that if we can be in God's will is a conviction that will drive you into loving the word of God. Wanting the word of God. Consuming the word of God. Because this is where we understand the will of God. In fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, after giving the most amazing sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he, he equates obedience to his words to a man who builds his house on a rock. And he says, the storms of life, they come, but the house will not fall. When we get this, when we understand that inside God's will is stability and security and blessing, we don't go, oh gosh, I've got to read the Bible today. Oh, I've got to go to church and listen to a sermon today. Can't wait till this is done because I want to go barbecue hot dogs. Maybe on the fourth we're thinking that a little bit, but no, we say, I love your word because, listen, family, this is a gift of grace. God didn't have to write it all down for us. He could have just let us figure things out ourselves. You'd have to go destroy relationships before you realize that honesty and integrity are important. You'd have to commit adultery and destroy your family before you realize that faithfulness in your marriage is important. God just says, here, I'll just give it to you. I'll, gi I'll give you the the cheat notes, the cheat book to, to the test. Like, this is how you live life. This is how you have security and stability underneath your feet. This is David's perspective continuously. David knows that he needs God's guidance to navigate the challenges in his life, and the same is true for us. Okay, let's end this. David, in the last two verses, he ends this prayer looking forward in faith. He ends this prayer waiting for the Lord. Here's what he says in verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is a bold declaration of faith. To wait on the Lord is encapsulated in this idea of believing in God's goodness. Even though it's not there yet, he's believing that God's goodness will be manifest in his life. He's going to see it. He's going to see it in the land of the living. David is saying, before I die, I'm going to see God's goodness. In other words, this, this threat that I'm facing is not final for me. This is not the end for me. God's going to see me through my enemy's schemes. Now, where did this confidence come from for David? Why, why did he know that this would not be his death? We don't know exactly. But one idea is this. David's confidence could have been rooted in God's promises to him. Now, we don't know for sure at what point in David's life Psalm 27 was written. Spurgeon thinks, though, that it could fit with a time where Doeg the Edomite 
tried to turn David into Saul. So Saul was pursuing young David. If that's true, then that locates Psalm 27 before David became king. But if you remember when David was a young shepherd boy, before there was ever a Saul hunting him down, Samuel the prophet came and anointed his head with oil and told him, you will be the king of Israel. God has chosen you. And perhaps for David now, as he's fleeing for his life and he's on the run from Saul, it's the promises of God that he would one day be king, and that hasn't happened yet, that is giving him the confidence that God's going to see him through. Well, either way, David is confident that he is going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's going to experience deliverance. And family, again, we can share in that same confidence. We will experience God's deliverance. It's either going to happen here in the land of the living, or it's going to happen in the truer land of the living. The land where death has been banished forevermore. We will experience deliverance. And so in verse 14, David declares that he is going to wait for the Lord. He's not going to be ruled by faith. Look at it's the opposite. He's going to be ruled by fear. He's going to be strong. He's going to let his heart take courage. These two verses that David ends with are really a picture of what faith looks like. Faith is trusting in God's good outcomes, even though they haven't materialized yet. Let me say that again. Trusting in God's good outcomes, even though they haven't materialized yet. Or, to quote a Bible verse, Hebrews 11.1 1 puts it this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is, again, it's confidence, it's assurance of things that are hoped for, of things that are not yet seen. So it's this trust in God's good outcomes, even though they haven't materialized yet. So as we come to the Lord in prayer, as we bring our hearts before the Lord, this is how we ought to close our prayers, especially in times of trial. We close our prayers waiting on the Lord. We close our prayers with faith being expressed in the Lord, trusting in Him, trusting in His goodness, even though we haven't seen how things are going to work out. Now, I'm not sure how you've entered church this morning. Maybe everything's awesome. Okay, maybe the only thing you're thinking about because life is going so good is the barbecue this afternoon and the fireworks tonight. If that's where you're at, awesome. Let this be a day that is overflowing in gratitude that your life is going great. Or maybe you walked into church this morning and your life is sort of like David's life in Psalm 27. There are very real threats around you. There are things right now that are creating all sorts of anxiety and fear and, and, and worry in your life right now. Regardless of where we're at this morning... You and I, in a very literal sense, are living in the land of terror and dread. But that reality does not have to be fear-inducing. You have two choices. You can either dwell in your head, and by that what I mean is you can live crippled by fear, just thinking about the potentialities in front of you, or like David, we can dwell in God's house. So you dwell in your head or you dwell in God's house. And by that again, I mean you can be, you can choose to be preoccupied by the person and the will 
of God. Making that your focus, making that the thing that is constantly being set before your mind and your heart. And if that's the posture of your heart, just daily coming to the Lord, Lord, you matter most. Your promises are going to sustain me. I'm going to delight in you today. If that's the way that we're choosing to live out our days, guess what? Fear will have less and less control over you. And your heart will be able to declare Psalm 27, 13, and 14. You'll be able to make David's prayer your own, saying to the Lord, I believe that I shall look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. You've got to speak to your own soul. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray.